0: Okay, so we are still on and are now just finishing number 149. And for those of you who are just here tonight, we're in the middle of a long story, so you'll just have to go back and look at the earlier episodes. (laughs) Okay, this is the last um, of the section. The following words were among the last advice Master gave to the monks. That was two pages ago, and there were 13 different points that I... Uh, Marked down, and this was the 13th of the things that he said. Master says, Another thing I urge all of you, give to one another the respect you have always shown me. Be kind to one another, just as you have been kind to me. If you see evil in one another, you desecrate the image of God that is in both of you. God is in everyone. To see good in all is to see him everywhere. That word respect is something that Swamiji always uh, always put a lot of emphasis on. Other people put more emphasis on love and other aspects, but he always put the biggest emphasis on respect. I remember once uh, there was a wedding in our community and there was a guest clergyman and he got up and gave a very I would call it a predictable little speech about the importance of love in marriage. And it was nice. There was nothing wrong with it. But Swami then stood up afterwards. It was interesting because Swami rarely corrected anyone. And he did it gracefully, but nonetheless. But he emphasized that uh, in all close relationships, marriage just being one of them, that respect is actually much more fundamental. He said, even in loving God, we're not consistent we have times when we love God more or when we lose interest in God. And he said, if we can't even be consistent in loving God, who is the most lovable, how can we expect to be consistent in loving another human being who is bound to be more and less lovable at different times depending on the trajectory of their own karma? But he said, if you can always hold respect, he said, then you can always have friendship. And if you can always have friendship, then there's always a way to go forward and a way to work together. But when respect is gone, I, in, my, in my book, uh, Swami Kriyananda, as we have known him, I tell a story about a woman who, who came to a crisis point in her marriage, and um, they were working their way through it with Swamiji's help, with his grace is what I would say more accurately. And at a certain point she, she wrote Swamiji and said, I just have the feeling that my husband doesn't respect me anymore. And Swamiji had had her, you know, had encouraged her to be forgiving and patient and all the way through. But when she said that, he said, oh, well, then I guess you'll have to leave. (laughs) And then, as it turns out, she brought it up to him and it was really just a a terrible misunderstanding. And everything went better after that. But it was interesting. His response at that point was entirely different. Because if there isn't respect, then it's also, it's... um, It's degrading for you to be in a a situation where you're not respected. That's where your own self-worth is constantly being undermined. If someone doesn't love you, or doesn't love you in the way you want them to love you, it might hurt your heart. But these things happen. You know, you can't always just command. People get on each other's nerves, karma changes, things happen. But respect is a wholly different reality. So when Master was saying, you know, fundamental... He's now talking about a monastery, which is uh, you know, very similar in its realities to marriage, which is where you are bound to each other in a close living situation without exit. And he wanted them uh, to be able to be successful in that. And he said, respect each other as you respect me. And it's a very interesting thing for those of us who lived, a more, who had the opportunity to live more closely with Swami Kriyananda, um, it was always an interesting question to ask yourself when you were dealing with anyone. If this were Swamiji, how would I deal with him? You know, in terms of just even, even little things. Um, if Swamiji was in our house visiting and he spoke, you know, I would never be doing something else while I was answering. Like we commonly do with each other. Someone comes in and speaks to you and you just keep on doing what you're doing or not now, or whatever the answer might be. But whenever, of course, he asked for anything, I just would drop everything and pay attention to him. And I would often ask myself, I just, you know, why not always be like that? It's a very good question, why not always be like that? The fact of the matter is, Swamiji was always very respectful to us, always. Just always gave us the full regard of the Divine Presence. And that didn't mean he was inappropriate, he didn't fawn on people or flatter people or allow people to be inappropriate with him. But always underneath it, there was always this awareness of um, who he was and where he was. And I don't mean who he was in a particularly elevated way as, as I might see him. But he, he always, as he, Master says it, he says it in such an interesting way, if you don't, he said, you desecrate the image of God that is in both of you, because you fail to live up to it, and you fail to see it. Of course, the key to all of this is uh, the vrittis in the spine, which are the, uh, the annoying factor. If it weren't for the vrittis in the spine, we would all behave so much better, wouldn't we? And uh, I, I was speaking to some people over the weekend when I was in Sacramento, and they were reminding me of this incident that is in the book again that I wrote about Swami that it always makes me start laughing when I think of it. It was the time when I was having an intense personal crisis. And for very co- various complicated reasons, there was nothing Swamiji could do about it. In fact, he needed me, as they say, to pull my socks up and straighten my spine and just go on with it. So he was not a very, he didn't reach out in sympathy And in fact, I was sitting on the floor in tears. And he got up and he went over to this drawer and he opened this drawer, remember? He opened this drawer and it was where we kept, he kept the flashlight batteries that had become a little weak, but still had some life in them. We were also poor then, we didn't just throw them away. So they might have, still might be able to be used a little. And they were just all in there with a little uh, tester. So I'm having the crisis of my life and he's over there testing the batteries to see which ones are good and which ones are not I mean the reason they accumulated in that drawer is because no one ever wanted to do that job it was the job you did when you had absolutely nothing else to do which apparently Swami felt was the case because all I was doing was having an end of life experience over here but it communicated to me that uh, I wasn't picking this up from the right end and the end result of all of that was quite positive. I rose to the occasion and later on Swami commended me for rising to the occasion. So it all came out just fine. But then, we were, I was talking at the lunch table in Sacramento on Sunday and we were talking about this and, um, and, and people took the natural thing from that. Well, Swami just, you know, he, he wasn't going to comfort you. They were starting to say he was, he, was, he was stern, sort of like that kind of an attitude. And uh, Nirmala said, oh, no, he was wonderfully comforting on other occasions. He just, and then I said, he had no personal agenda. He, he had no, he didn't become uncomfortable if you were suffering. Um, he, he, he was perfectly capable of comforting you if comfort was needed. It wasn't like he wasn't able to reach out and, and be very, extremely sympathetic. But he just had no agenda of his own. He had no vrittis that caused his mind to agitate. He could always just be very calmly in a situation, see it for what it was, and then respond. And having no personal agenda bent, he wasn't impatient with our shortcomings. He just respected that God is working out his story, and what can I do to help him at this point? And then he would ask, and then whatever that was, he would just completely do it. And in my particular instance, where I was falling uh, to pieces emotionally, he looked at me and he thought, she just has to learn this. I can't help her, she's just got to get it straight. So he found a way to communicate with me. (laughs) And he didn't say anything unkind, because it wouldn't have, that would have hurt my feelings terribly. But he just moved away. Then I noticed... (laughs) It also had to do with my respect for him. This was also came out in the lunch table discussion. I said it really was a matter of, of one's own inner ability to answer the question, who do you think I am? Because the answer to that question is how one would respond in such a situation. It would be quite easy to just become outraged. How dare you treat me like that? But I had too much respect for him. Too much respect for his uh, inherent goodness and wisdom. So I had to ask myself and said, Why is he treating me like that? What a strange response. And uh, in, in every time I've had difficulty with people in my life, and of which I've had my share, certainly, probably more than my share, it's always when I lose respect. And you start lecturing people and you start being impatient with them and You start thinking that they've made mistakes, and how could they be so stupid, and how dare you treat me like this, and I would never treat Swami like that, because I respected him too much. Now, of course, he'd earned my respect, you might say, but also everybody's earned our respect, because everybody's equally a child of God, just struggling along in their own way. And so you don't necessarily respect their ignorance, or their foolishness, or their cruelty, their insensitivity to you, but you just fundamentally respect that this is just another soul making his way, and so am I, and then therefore we have to figure out what the appropriate response is here, whatever it might be. It's a very important one. Sister Gyanamata said, when she was talking about her relationship to the guru, she said you can say anything at all to master, she was telling the other, her fellow disciples, You can say anything at all to the guru as long as you speak with detachment and respect. And and those are also, those are marvelous criteria. As long as you speak with detachment. And people are very um, sensitive to being able to tell when you're pretending to talk for their welfare and you're really talking for yours. Your children especially just can really tell that. You know, that when it's really your anxiety. Uh, A young man put it to me very clearly. He said something about situation he was in where things were not necessarily going to work out in the way he'd hoped and uh, he knew what the risks were, he wasn't dumb but he said quite simply that he felt he had the creativity and the energy to deal with it even if it did fall apart whereas his parents did not they had neither the energy well because they didn't have the energy they didn't have the creativity they were just at a wholly different stage of life so Ending up somewhere, not being able to get home in time, having to sleep in the car, having to walk 10 miles, you know, having to run out of gas, having to hitchhike. I mean, all these things are like, for a person in their 70s, these are very challenging issues. For a person in their 20s, they're just part of the adventure of life. Um, so it's the detachment and respect. You know, that You'll figure it out. I know you'll figure it out. And it's all right. It can happen to you. It's not happening to me. <laughs> no, no agenda. I, I need you to behave this way because I'm uncomfortable if you don't. And it isn't really. And, you know, a lot of teenagers just rebel against their parents ruthlessly because they can tell that that's what's really going on. And, of course, that doesn't mean that all teenagers have good judgment, but they can tell that that's what's going on. And uh, no matter how it's, how it's packaged, they can still tell well, that's what's happening. So it's a very important principle to keep in mind. He also says with kindness. And kindness is always a good idea. But kind can also be stern. Because sometimes the greatest kindness is um, not to cooperate with what you know is not going to be helpful. Of course... With Master, and again, that was another thing that I would always think of with Swami. I would just—I would always be willing to do whatever he wanted from me, always. And I never thought—I never hesitated to say yes. But with other people, suddenly I'm tired. It's like it was so strange to me. Often when I would think about it, like I—why—why why could I easily do it for one and not for another? What's the difference? And again, in my book, I talked about when Swamiji used to. Give every other Sunday service when I was cooking in the kitchen at Way a hundred years ago at an under retreat. Every other Sunday, I would make a beautiful lunch, and on the alternative Sundays, I just put out anything at all. I mean, I was feeding the whole community each time, but the effort I put to the lunches that he attended was, you know, five times what I put to the lunches he, he didn't attend. And one day when I was doing it, I thought to myself, I don't think Swami would be pleased to know this. I don't think he would be pleased to see that I didn't care about anyone else. And so I started putting out the same effort for every meal, whether he was there or not. But it was just effortless to do that for him. And then, eh, who cares? But um, it it begins, you, you begin to learn how to put out selfless energy when you're highly motivated to do it. That's why so many people have babies. Because that's for often for people, not for everyone, but often, that's the first time people understand what true selfless love is. And it's not like you have to work hard at it. You just automatically feel that way. And even though you might be sleep deprived and various other things, it's still, it's just a joy. You just do it and gradually what you understand is that it's not really the baby that's making me so happy it's the selfless giving and I remember when we were nuns in the early years and Swami saying to us don't think just because you haven't had children that you get to escape that kind of self-sacrifice he said you should be working every day as a mother works to take care of her new child he said it's not that's, that's what's being asked of us it's not the form that's being asked it's that kind of Selfless giving. And because when you do, then you discover, ah, that's what it was about. And mothers and fathers who learn the lesson properly realize where the joy of it really comes from. Um, But we don't learn very fast, so we just do it lifetime after lifetime until it it gradually comes in. Any comments or questions? So number 150, the master often reminisced about his early years as he approached the end of his life. There was a temple in Benares, he told us, which I enjoyed visiting. I found there an opening inside. It led into another world. How different from the busy street outdoors. The opening was just wide enough for me to squeeze through it if I went in sideways and remember, I was only a boy then and thin for my age. Within that opening, I found a flight of stairs leading down. I descended three stories. I couldn't take a candle with me as there was no fresh air. It was completely dark down below and completely silent. The sound of "Om boomed loudly. I discovered a little niche there just big enough for me to sit in. And there I sat, did a few kriyas, and went into breathless ecstasy. Oh my gosh, there's so many parts to that story. First of all, those of us who didn't grow up in India, what a country. I mean, it's like a niche this wide that he could slip into and it goes down three stories. Like, What? What? You know, uh, uh, Benares is considered to be one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world. So who knows? What, just You have no idea. He gives you no clue. He wasn't carrying a candle. He doesn't know what was down under there either. No treasures, statues. What? Yeah, it, you're, you're wrinkling your nose. Like just, just the sheer courage to just walk down in the pitch black following the staircase. And then just how happy he was. To be able to go three stories down into the ground without a candle, nobody knew it where he was, of course, or could ever get to him, or would even imagine that he could go through what was this tiny spot, but then he found himself just completely separated from this world. And when doing, and he didn't need air, he didn't need what the candle needed, he'd just go into breathless ecstasy. Wow. But it's, uh, it, it, even just to imagine yourself in such a situation when you when we sit down in our little home to meditate in front of our little altar, you know, just imagine, what if I was in pitch black three stories down in the ground and there wasn't a sound around me? And, and just it, to have the courage to detach yourself that much from the life around you. I mean, what, one of the things that keeps us bound when we meditate is just we, we, we want a little relief at times, from the experience of our own consciousness. But do we really have the nerve to let it go so completely? Just to put ourselves in a spot that is, has absolutely no relationship to who we really are mother, father, friend, everything gone. I'm just in pure blackness and absolute silence. And b- breathless ecstasy, I would add. <laughs> It's marvelous just to... It also helps us to be honest and realistic about our own lives and not so much to uh, make us feel bad but just to make us feel appropriate in our responses to things because a lot of times we spend a tremendous amount of energy castigating ourselves for simply being who we are. Uh, You know, you you don't... uh, tell a little six-year-old child that they need to behave like someone who's 21. It's just, you just don't think to do it. A child is six. You try to get them to behave not like a three-year-old. You're not a little baby anymore. I remember when my friend was trying to uh, persuade her son to use the potty, and he was quite uninterested. And she tried the old ploy, don't you want to be a big boy, she said. He looked at her just in total surprise. No, mother, I love being a baby. (laughs) It was just like, no, I don't want to be a big boy. I like who I am. This is fun, being this small and having everybody take care of me. And he was an extremely lovable child, and everybody did take care of me. He had a lot of magnetism as a baby, and I wouldn't have been eager to pass through that stage either. It was working for him really well. Um, But uh, let me just think what my thought was in that. Oh, yes, we... We read these extremely inspiring and elevated images in Master's prayers and in his book, and it's, it's right that we should feel thrilled by that potential. But a mistake sometimes people make is they feel diminished because they're not able to realize that potential, or even worse, they feel ashamed or even angry with themselves because they're not able to live at a certain standard. I told this story several times recently about Swamiji talking about his own extreme state of renunciation and his, his, his true and honest rejection of this world and uh, he, telling the story to people for whom it was not at all appropriate. And he said in the end, don't even think about living the way I live. And then he just said, you could never do it. And he said, it wouldn't even be appropriate for you to try. And being able to just that's right, I'm 6 years old, I'm 12 years old, I'm 14, I'm not 28, I'm not 60. And that what is appropriate for me is this. This is what I should be doing right now. And, and realize that this is my full expression. That was a, a cycle I had to go through in my 30s. I just kept thinking. It was, it was a, it's strange how the mind twists. My mind is a little twisted. But the mind would twist... And I, I was always in a state of thinking that I wasn't doing it as well as I could. And gra- and gradually it occurred to me, who who do you think could do it better? You know, like, where where is the one who's going to do it better? And I was running a a kind of mental attitude where I thought there was some imaginary better version of myself that was deliberately not cooperating. And if I just bullied them enough they would suddenly take possession of me and then everything would work great and it was a both very liberating and extremely depressing when i realized that there wasn't a better version of me that this was it no really you understand that it was a really huge thing so i read about master if i was in varanasi and i saw a little niche niche in the wall hole in the wall just wide enough for me to slide through. Would I slide through it? You bet I wouldn't. You know? <laughs> like, where does it go? And if it's pitch black in there and it's heading down, I, don't, I couldn't imagine having the nerve to do that. So that's okay. Nobody's asking me to. You know, God won't ask of us more than we can handle. Sometimes he asks of us more than we think we can handle. But that's something quite different. But just to say, he was Master was a very unusual person. And he's telling us these stories. So we'll get a perspective also. Because there's also the problem of spiritual life, which is that if you hang around with a lot of people who are kind of short, you begin to feel really, really tall. And you begin to think that you're, you know, you're pretty hot stuff. When I first moved to Ananda, I didn't have any... I I had a, a group of spiritual friends, but... They were not highly advanced. They were sincere, but they were not advanced. And, and one of the ways that I'd picked up the spiritual path was through a strictness in my diet, which is what people do a lot. You somehow start with your physical body. So I was very strict in my diet. And I had a, I had a complete um, unit, unanimity between strictness in diet and spiritual development. It was just right on top of each other, which Swami dismantled almost immediately. But I thought it meant something. That I didn't need sugar. And it did mean something. It it was nice that I had the capacity to not do that. It wasn't useless. But it, it really was not indicative of spiritual advancement on the level that I had hoped. Let's just put it like that. So when you hear stories like this about Master, you realize how extremely detached one could be from this world. That one would just delight in fleeing it completely and go into breathless ecstasy and not be the slightest bit concerned. It's a one, It's wonderful. And uh, uh, what an interesting man he was. Yeah. Comments or questions about that? There's stories in the life of Ramana Maharshi who uh, was living a more or less ordinary life and then, I think it was in his high school years, somewhere in there, He just had a revelation of the nature of reality and he just walked away from home. Just walked away. And he found some, I think, similar temple and he found a place underground and he just went underground and sat there for a really long time. Just completely realized that this world was a dream and he needed to go to uh, the place, to reality. So he just put everything behind him and just went off to do it. Thrilling, terrifying, terrifying. Sobering, it's all kinds of things, all of which are good. St. Teresa of Avila did it more in a childlike way and was more Catholic. She read that um, if you really, you know, her, her theology at that time, she, of course, grew a little beyond it, way beyond it. But the theology was that you're saved or you're damned. And, it's, and this life is very short, and at the end of it, you're either, you either go to heaven for eternity or go to hell. And so she reasoned it out and decided that she certainly didn't want to go to hell. She wanted to go to heaven. Quickest way to get there was to be martyred. This is the Catholicism of the 1500s, I think, when she lived. So she set out with her, she persuaded one of her brothers to go with her at the age of eight, and she was going to look for the Moors, which because the Spain, Spain, the Spanish were fighting the Moors. She was going to go find the Moors and have them cut off her head, and then she would be martyred, and then she would go right to heaven, and she'd just skip the whole middle part of having a life. <laughs> it seemed like such a good idea to her. But still, I mean, it was a child's brain. But nonetheless, that's the only thing that matters. I'll, I'll tell you some. I uh, was given a book called American Saints, which is actually it's sort of an interesting book. And uh, Saints, by the Catholic Church's definition, which always has to do with cooperating with the Catholic Church. And so this was about Jesuit friars, Jesuit priests, and, San Franciscan friars in like the 1500s, 1600s, who came from Europe to the American the continent of what became the United States to convert the American Indians to the true religion of believing in Jesus Christ as our only Savior. So um, they firmly believed that it was their duty to do so because if these people died without knowing Jesus Christ as their Savior, they would go to hell. So if they could just baptize them before they died, they would go to heaven. And it was well worth the sacrifice of your comforts and even of your own life if you could save someone from eternal damnation, because you, of course, were already saved. So um, the Indians were not willing to learn French, or French was, they were mostly from France. So the, the Jesuits had, the Catholics had to learn the Indian language. And this was talking about someone who were up in the Huron Indian, up in New York State. And they were hampered by the fact that the, language, the Indian language of Huron has no word for sin, <laughs> penance, <laughs> redemption. The words didn't even exist in their language. They found it completely incomprehensible that the Great Spirit would condemn them to hell. <laughs> you know, there's no word for hell. They just didn't have the whole... The entire worldview was so foreign to them, but the people persevered. And then there was another irony to the whole thing was that the, the, there were often epidemics through the Indians because of the germs that the white people brought to them. So there were periodic epidemics in which many people died. And the priests used to like to really go to the dying people because they would baptize them just before they died, and then they would save them from eternal hell. I mean, it's hard for us to take it seriously, but they took it very seriously. But what the Indians noticed is, one, the priests would seek out the weakest among them, they would do their rituals over them, and then those people would die. And the priests didn't die. And so, gradually, the Indians killed the priests. (laughs) It was a perfectly reasonable thing to think about. (laughs) Then they became martyrs, and they became saints. But the, the actual point that was really fascinating on, on an odd level was the degree to which they were willing to sacrifice themselves. And they wrote, you know. They knew because they knew that almost inevitably, eventually, these people would turn on them and kill them. But they didn't mind. It was they were going to do it for the, um, to save the souls. It was sincere. Um, it, to our minds, it seems crazy. But it was sincere at the time. But look at the courage it gave them. I mean, really, even though it's bigoted, on the other hand, my goodness, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it takes your breath away, really, to think how heroic they were, sacrificing everything, and ultimately their own lives for that. Yeah, quite something. It, it, it shows you how many, how many ways the Spirit can lead you. And how powerfully the Spirit can lead us and gives us just clues of nothing like that is asked of us. It's just not our way. When I visited, uh, uh, I guess was it Monday that Mother Teresa of Calcutta became uh, canonized by the church? And uh, when we started going to India in 1987 and went about every other year for 20 years about, we would go to Mother Teresa's place in Calcutta. And she was often in residence and she would... If she was in residence, she would meet with us. You, if you if you got up early enough and came to 5.30 Mass, then she would meet with you afterwards. You had the was you had to get up and go to 5.30 Mass, and then she would meet with you. So I met her on a number of occasions. Um, so it was... Uh, what was the point of that? Oh, yes. The life was so regimented and so simple. Right after Mass, the, the nuns would... Um, go into the stone courtyard it's you know, very simple buildings in, in Calcutta, they're going to the stone courtyard and they would have one, one outfit and they would wash the other one in a bucket and they would hang it up to dry so that they would have it for the next day just like this and they would go and have their very simple meal then they'd go and they'd have their little rooms, these little stone rooms and all of it was so familiar and I, it would be hard for me to say it would be easy for me to live that way because I think that would be a presumption but it was certainly familiar to me, just how you, you just do this, you just, you simplify down to nothing, you have a simple self-sacrificing task, and you do it, and you and you know that, God, you know that God is pleased, and it's going to be okay. I mean, it's a very real spiritual life, not ours, though. Ours is here, oddly enough, and this is what is being asked of us on a completely different level. But there's still power in those images. That's, that's what I'm saying. There's still an enormous power in those images. And sometimes when this world is too much with us, it's very good to sit in the midst of whatever plenty we are enjoying and just, just bring yourself almost back to the memory of those lifetimes. And, uh, and try, I, the way I try to do it is I try to impose on the complexity of this life the simplicity of that life. Because that that's what's, for me at least, that's the attractive quality. There's just so few options, and you don't have all this subtlety to deal with. You just, you know exactly what you're doing, you simply do it, and you, you repeat it in a very simple way. But what you're really doing, is you have no personal agenda. Goes back to Swami, doesn't it? Like those nuns, they, they had no, they, there was no margin for a personal agenda, they just couldn't have one. Those Jesuits, they couldn't have one. They just, that what they did, there was only one thing to do. But that was their freedom. It wasn't picking up the poor from the street or saving the Indians before they died. It was having no personal agenda, which takes us all the way back to Swami, where I started, doesn't it? No vrittis, no likes and dislikes. You help get over likes and dislikes by giving yourself something where you have no choices. My very early years at Ananda, when we were very, it was, mostly, it was mostly a factor of having no money. But it was also just a factor of we had no agenda except to sort of go along with this project and try to make it happen. But, and then had no money to do anything else. But it was so simple. I mean, dealing with your desires when you have no money is really very easy because the, you, you, you can't buy anything or do anything. So it never comes up. <laughs> having a little bit of money is difficult. Because then the possibility is always there. You can always look at the catalog and see if there's a bargain. <laughs> but if you have no money, you don't even open the catalog. You just throw it away. What's the point? Why would I even look? And again, you know, we can artificially, and that's the challenge, but artificially try to bring ourselves inwardly to that state of simplicity again. Just go three stories down where there's no air, and uh, go breathless into ecstasy. Yes. Oh, the cave at Vasishta Guha. But, you yeah, the, um, know, the cave up a, a little beyond Rishikesh uh, where um, Vasishta was said to, have, yeah, Gufa. That's where uh, many of us on our pilgrimage trip would go there. For many of us, it was our favorite place. And you, you, you could get far enough into it that you had that experience of a cave. And there'd been many great saints who'd lived there. Swami Purushottamananda was one who, Lived there for many years, and it was, it was quite. Well, there were people had different responses. There are cave dwelling yogis, and there's uh, other yogis. And the cave dwelling yogis from America who got to have it about a four hour fantasy really loved it. <laughs> Others who liked the broad ocean vistas found it less so. But yeah, it was quite something there. They said also the tradition was that the cave was much deeper but that it had been sealed off by Purushota I think, because many great saints in their astral bodies were on the other side, and they didn't want to be disturbed, so they sealed the cave off at a certain point. Yes, it was wonderful. Thank you for reminding me of that. We're just having a moment. All right, okay. Anything else? Number 151. Another time, he told us, again reminiscing, when I was a boy, I liked to play football in one of the neighborhoods we moved to. So uh, Master always was playing sports. You read this in the book Mejda. It's really interesting how, how much he talks about playing sport um, for a, a female person who never really liked games very much. I find it interesting because he, doesn't, he didn't do anything by accident. He could have done anything. He could, have, you know, he could have been the one who helped his mother in the kitchen the whole time, but he's always going out playing games with the boys. So anyway, I like to play football in one of the neighborhoods we moved to. The boys cursed and used vulgar language. I didn't care for it, so I said, as long as you talk like that, I won't come and play with you. That led them to decide that we were enemies. Also, Master took them on. He could have just gone home. He could have just not gone and play with them, but instead he challenged them. I don't like what you're doing. You need to stop. He was, always, uh, he was always acting from divine grace. One day, they hatched a plot to punish me. There was a crazy fellow who lived in our neighborhood. People called him Jotin, the mad fellow. He would pick a fight with anyone, even without any reason. Those boys threatened to set him on me if I refused to play with them. Still, I said, I won't come so long as you go on using foul language. Here also is Master. As a young boy, he, he, there were standards. He was a young boy. He liked sports, but he had his standards. He wasn't willing to say boys will be boys or anything like that. There was another thing here. Just a moment. Oh, also, it's sort of fun, like, he had dangerous experiences, Also, and I remember Swamiji once was talking to a small group of boys, a group of small boys at the Seattle community, and uh, there were some real um, mischievous ones in that crowd. And Swami talked to them, and he said, Be good, but not too good. (laughs) That's what he said. You know, show a little spunk. And, and, And there's a lot of stories in Master's life where he showed a lot of spunk. It also sort of tells you what, what is right behavior. Right behavior for a child is not what is most convenient for an adult. So, unless you stop using the foul language. Well, the following evening, evening, this man was waiting for me in the, par- in the park, through which I passed every day. I saw him even before entering the park. He was carrying a big stick in his hand. There were two friends of mine walking with me. They said, don't go in there. He means to give you a big beating. I answered, don't be afraid. We can go in. First, however, I returned to my room and meditated. So Jotin's standing out there with a stick and Master goes home to meditate. I prayed to Shiva, Lord of Destruction. Also, Master's just putting this in here. He prayed to Shiva. He could have prayed to anyone or anything. But uh, I prayed to Shiva um, after visiting in India many times and being so not raised in the deities, so American in our thinking and so confused by the vividness of those images and the contradiction of those images and the inability of our Indian friends to tell us who was really in charge among these deities. We always wanted to know who the top guy was. I mean, it took me years to realize that was the actual question we were asking. But we'd get so confused because sometimes Shiva was the top guy and sometimes Kali was the top guy. And it just was so mixed up for us. But gradually, as I got more sophisticated, I just began to appreciate that they're there different vibrations. And depending on what vibration you need, this is a personification of one of the vibrations that the divine can express. And, and Shiva, renunciation, destruction, the power to overcome, to cast aside, to do, all of that, it's a particular vibration, and you don't always need it. Sometimes you need Saraswati or something much more lakshmi, you need the, the blessing, but sometimes you need Shiva. So here he was, he goes home and he prays to Shiva, and it's, it's an, an interesting like confirmation of these things which in the West people are sometimes inclined to. Just dismiss and and we think we, we just completely miss the subtlety of it we don't realize that the reason we don't get this is it's so much more subtle than the way we understand it and we just kind of toss it aside but when you need shiva shiva's the one you need and it's, it's very nice to know that it's all there so master went and prayed to lord shiva lord of destruction but then he says let my love and blessings destroy Jotin's anger. That's marvelous. Let's take a little break before we know. I know you're just dying to know what happens, but let's take a little break first. Shall we find out what happens? Um, I then returned to the park. My friends wouldn't join me. <laughs> you can imagine that. Jotin blocked the path, menacingly brandishing his stick. I mean, he's a grown man, and Master's just a boy. He's a crazy man, too. I walked up to him slowly and looked him straight in the eye, calmly and steadily. There ensued a pause. Then he dropped his gaze, smiled a little sheepishly, and left the scene. Just imagine, and his friends are watching from the side... But Master has attuned himself to Shiva, and he's standing there, and he has no personal agenda. He just knows that what the boys are doing is wrong, and he feels that it's his position to fix it. And now his karma has brought him into a relationship with this crazy man, so he has something he has to give him, too. The next night in meditation, I asked Shiva to change Jyotin. See, here it is still, we're still talking to Lord Shiva. Master said that the positions of the gods exist, the way Swami put it, it's not always the same soul that, it's it's advanced souls that play the role of the gods. This is how Swami explained it once, and I'm just telling you. It's advanced souls that are playing the roles of these gods. It's it's a way of being an angel. I mean, in the West, we have the angel Gabriel and these others. He said, but it's not always the same soul. He said, like the king of England. There's always a king of England, but it's not always the same jiva that is playing the role. And, and Master put it that these various gods exist and different angelic advanced souls play those parts. And then I suppose you graduate from, you know, you've done it enough. Because it really is just a way of serving people because people will pray to that form and that form can respond to them. Yes. Wondering things like, how long do they get to be Shiva or whoever, and do some of them do better jobs of it than others? (laughs) Um, Yes. Those are the kinds of questions that Swami, he's not here for me to ask, but I kind of know how he would respond. (laughs) He would just look at me and say, some mysteries must wait until later to be unraveled. Even the thought of them actually being individual souls playing out the part, I, I don't know. I just think it's fascinating. Um, It also tells you, I mean, I started out talking about how the Jesuits uh, had their relationship to the Native American peoples and didn't really understand or appreciate anything they were doing. And now we have this East-West combination of um, us Americans who by now have learned a tremendous respect for a great deal that's going on in India. But when the first English missionaries arrived there, Um, they did not have any respect for it. And I don't have respect for everything that goes on in India, merely because it's going on over there. I mean, it says, um, before I went to India, I thought that what we were doing was Hinduism, just because how would I know any differently? And the first time I went to India, I perceived that um, what Master taught was no more Hinduism than it was Catholicism. It was about exactly as much Hinduism as it was Catholicism, which those of you who are Westerners who are familiar with Catholicism and this teaching, realize that there's little threads that you can pull out and you can see it. And that's about how, how Hindu it really is. Just a thread here and a thread there. But issues, ideas like these deities are not about Hinduism. These are super-conscious symbols that have been given to us by great sages who perceived these realities and then they began they begin to take this form um, because it was a way to communicate what, what was hard to understand otherwise. Shiva, as an example, happens to be a personal favorite. Um, it's, just a, it's just a magnificent image and there's just so many times in your life when it's just what you need. And, there's, it, and it just brings it to a focus in a way that without that, it would be very difficult to bring it to such a clear focus. The other side of all of this, the, you know, East and West, just because it came up in conversation, there was some, there was some discussion about you know, the role of Jesus in Master's Path and when, now that Ananda has started to work in India... How much emphasis do we put on Jesus or how how much not emphasis on Jesus? And the festival of light, which we do here every Sunday, which has a little bit of a little bit of the quality of the Catholic Mass and has certain references in it to Jesus, whether or not it's appropriate to do that in India. This is and is not done as often in India Ananda India as it does is done in Ananda America. And there's there's discussion that goes on, and I'm not a decision maker and I'm not in resident there so it's not something that i personally have to make a, a decision about but part of the objection that was raised is that it was too much about jesus so i proposed one day to swami i said look we westerners have had to take guru reincarnation karma shiva kali i think for them to take jesus is not asking too much you know it's just like it's part of what the trade is and we've had to understand what all that really means, and just go, go past the ritualistic side of it, which is not what Master brought. And I think on the other side, um, those who've had a, a, an understandable aversion to Christianity being crammed down your throats by people who didn't respect your culture at all, I think you should also need to get past that and see what Jesus was really bringing. And that's if it's going to be an East-West connection, it has to be a complete loop, presented that to Swami. And his response was, of course, just like that. Of course, Jesus was fundamental to this. And then there's the whole side about Jesus since I'm here. And we'll find out what happens to Jotun before we go home tonight. Um, one of Jesus' disciples... Well, there's two things. Jesus, it, 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 Master explains to us that when Jesus was 12 which is the last time he's referenced in the, in the Bible until he's 30, um, he left his home and he went to India. And he went, he went to the Himalayas and he studied with Babaji and the others. And Master said that the three wise men who came from the East to pay homage to the baby Jesus were three of the gurus of our path. I mean, I, ha- I can't evaluate those, but since everything else Master said, I believe was true, this would be also true He's also talking about this unity. And then there's other traditions, which are all verified, just not, not in the popular culture, that Jesus was in India for 18 years, and he traveled all over. He wasn't just a sadhu in a cave. He traveled all over, and there's these stories about him going down to the Jagannath Temple in Puri and trying to persuade the priests to be more broad-minded and having the same fight with them that he later had with the priests in Jerusalem. And just all of this... And Swami said that to me. I said, Swami, the majority of Jesus' life was spent in India. It looks like his, his bigger mission was actually to India, although the, the enduring influence has been in the West. There's another tradition, which I don't... that he, he actually went after his crucifixion and resurrection. He went and lived in Kashmir for a long time. I have no idea how to think about that one. That one doesn't fit in as neatly as... There's other things I can hear that all fit together. That one is a little hard for me to... I, I can't figure out why he would do that. It just doesn't make sense. But that's neither here nor there. But then his disciple Thomas, according to verified sources, I, I'm not, I can't list them for you, but I've seen them and read them, that Thomas's assignment from Jesus, always it was understood that he was to go back to India. I mean, you can see it just in a logical sense. Jesus had started a great work in India, really. And he came back and did what he had to do, which included dying in uh, Jerusalem. And he said to his disciple, Thomas, your work is India. You need to go back. So as soon as Jesus died, Thomas went right to India, southern India, and then brought the teachings of Jesus, which, according to what I've read, he just came in and taught Sanatana Dharma because that's what Jesus taught. And he taught a completely other form of Christianity which took hold and was very powerful. And Thomas's body is in a, a temple in Chennai and it's a magnificent place. Um, there's, a, there's a burial site that's supposed to be Thomas's. But then what happened was, 300 years later, the Portuguese Catholics came in And they systematically obliterated Thomas Christianity, which is what it was called. And they burned all the scriptures, they burned all the books, and they just took it over. And then turned it into Roman Catholicism, which is completely different. Now, all of that is relevant in my mind when we think about East and West. What are we trying to bring back together? You know, What we're really trying to bring back together is all of us are trying to repudiate all of this Kali Yuga uh, corruption, which not only has corrupted our own Jewish, Christian, Hindu, Sanat and Dharma traditions of all of us, and it's also divided us from each other. And that's what we're all repudiating now. This is our job. World Brotherhood, uh, self-realization is the unifying reality behind all religions. It's very serious. And we have to do it uh, courageously and correctly. It's not just a question of being very tolerant of one another and, you know, yes, I know you believe this and I believe that, which is all this polite stuff, which is I'll put up with your wrong teaching because when you die you'll find out that I was right, you know. <laughs> it's completely beyond that. It's not putting up with each other. It's actually recognizing that... Uh, Maya has confused us, and we need to repudiate that confusion. Okay, so he was praying to Lord Shiva, and then he said. Any comments or questions about that before we go on? Uh, I've read recently, um, you may have heard, the two, a couple of books about Jesus going to India. And one of the things, he was called Isa, have you heard that? Yeah. And one of the things they said was that the Jews did not kill Jesus, that it was Pilate. Who had him arrested, and it was his. I don't know how much that means, but uh. well, there's a, there's a lot of effort on the part of Jews to not be responsible for that, <laughs> which I think is really wise, you know, because it's it's been a tough it's been a tough road. I mean, most of you know that's my family heritage too. So yeah, it's like this is not something we enjoy, and a lot of bad stuff has happened. But the fact of the matter is, everybody in the story was Jewish. I mean. If Pilate, the Romans actually put Jesus to death because the Jews were an oppressed people and did not have the right to issue a death sentence. But they were the ones who were upset about him because the Romans just, he didn't they didn't care what he was doing. He was, he was, but what the, but the reality of it was, it wasn't Judaism. It was a corrupt priesthood that was being undermined by a true teaching. And the corrupt priesthood, needed to get rid of the true teacher the fact that anybody was jewish was completely irrelevant it was that there was a corrupt priesthood and a threat to that power and everybody was jewish all of them jesus and all his followers and all the corrupt priests and but they they went to Pilate to do it because the romans were the only ones with the power they wanted to put him to death according to our law he must die and we can't do it you have to do it that's how the bible puts it and it was, it was not a smart thing for them to have done. It was really highly unfortunate. Uh, but uh, there you have it. And it just, it's, you can't, you, really, you can't, you can't twist that story to come out any other way. But in our, in our little life, I mean, in every, sto- in every story virtually where a highly spiritual person is persecuted, he's persecuted by other people who are also following usually the same spiritual path. Because nobody else cares. Nobody else is threatened by the fact that this person is, is proposing a other, whole, whole other teaching. The ones who's threatened are the ones who have the power with the existing teaching. St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross. Um, you know, the, the, the Catholic Church traditionally persecutes its saints, which makes them saints, and then canonizes them. Because they're threatened. Padre Pio was a tremendous threat to the established order of the Catholic Church. Um, St. Joseph of Cupertino was a tremendous threat to the established order. Francis was an, a threat. And so it's their own people who go after them. Ananda was a threat to self-realization fellowship. We were not tortured and put into prison, but we went through 12 years of litigation, which was the modern-day version. We, every night when we'd go home to our apartment for dinner and could sleep in our own beds, we would say... Well, we used to have to be thrown into stone cells, you know, and just have dry bread and water. At least we can go home and have pasta if we want to. It could be worse. You know, there was, they were bankrupting our bank accounts and taking all our time and being incredibly annoying. But but because nobody else cared, it was that Kriyananda was an enormous Ananda, enormous theological threat to the monopoly on Yogananda's teachings that SRF has. And nobody else was. You know, they didn't care about um, Ram Ramdas or Ramakrishna or anyone like that. They cared about the one who hit their own power. So it's just it's the way it always is. If it, if it was unique, you would worry about it. It's the way it always is. Does that make sense? You know, the, the East-West thing I, I feel is a... It's not a small thing. We have to really meditate on that and think about that properly. When I first was travelling in India and was teaching there, I it was a little confusing to me as to what I was supposed to do. I, I didn't know how I I travelled in India a lot, but not in that role. Was I supposed to um be extremely respectful, you know, of where I was and what I was doing? And I finally realized, no, actually. I mean, I love this country and I love the culture and I love the people and all of that, but they don't know anything about master's teachings. (laughs) I mean, they don't. They know a great deal about their traditions, but they don't know master's teaching on it. And I just finally felt as comfortable speaking about what master taught to that audience as I did to any other, because it was the same responsibility. Um, There's uh, an innate attunement, and you're starting at a point of much greater familiarity. You don't have to start at the beginning of the alphabet, which was a great relaxation. But that didn't mean that the self-realization as presented by Yoganando was any more understood. It's a new dispensation and it's a new expression on all sides. And we all have to just put aside. I mean, I did it all so long ago and I never had any obstacles to it. But many people, of Jews are very uncomfortable with Jesus on the altar. or Catholics are very... Catholics are very uncomfortable with everybody else on the altar, and the Jews are very uncomfortable with Jesus on the altar. And then women are uncomfortable because there are only men on the altar. I mean, just give yourself a choice and Maya will find a way. And that's all you're doing. And then we just have to put it all aside. You have to find that little crack and then go down into the place where none of it's there. (laughs) All right. What happened to Jotun? So he smiled at me a little sheepishly and left the scene. The next night in meditation, I asked Shiva to change Jotun. In the afternoon, you can see now Master's meeting one of his old disciples. This is like Jesus at the well in Samaria, meeting the woman who was a fallen disciple. Jotun was a fallen disciple, I think is how you would call him. In the afternoon of the following day, I went back to the park. Jotun was standing there this time. However, there was no stick in his hand. Evening was follow Falling and Jotin began to follow me. My friends who had come with me whispered fearfully, He's coming this way. He intends to beat you up. They hurried away. When Jotin caught up with me, however, he prostrated on the ground before me and cried, What have you done to me? Shiva appeared before me in a vision last night. Wow. And said to me, You are being unjust. He added, and then the and uh, Jyotin said, I want to follow you. Thus he became my student. Master doesn't call him his disciple here, but you, you can imagine, I mean, the, I, the idea just occurred to me when I said it a moment ago, of Jyotin being a fallen disciple, that Master's finding and bringing back, or, but because he had to have had a receptive heart here. A few months later, Jyotin said to me one day, You have helped me in so many ways, God, through you. Can you help me in my present predicament? Every time my boss scolds me, I become angry and slap him. (laughs) (laughs) Owing to this weakness of mine, I can't hold a job. (laughs) This is a problem. But I just can't help myself. I lose my temper too easily. Master, I said to him, Master said to him, I have taught you meditation. See, now, somewhere in here, Master taught this man meditation. He says he prostrated himself and became my student. What happened in between? Did Master initiate him? Did he teach him Kriya Yoga? What else took place? And now this Jyotin has advanced to this point. I have taught you meditation. Tonight, while meditating, keep these words in mind. Whatever thought you hold strongly, surround it with energy and let it wash away the habit you wish to destroy. Jyotin did as I suggested. He practiced this simple technique daily for weeks. So also here's Jyotin doing his part. And also, Jyotin was just this crazy angry man, but Master presented to him an alternative vibration. I mean, that's that's at the beginning of this story. He's there with a stick, and he's going to just do what he always does and beat people up. But Master instead presented to him an alternative vibration. And Jyotin was not so lost in his darkness that he wasn't able to see it. And he was also sensitive enough um, to see that he wanted that. Because sometimes people come in contact with the spiritual vibration and they repudiate it rather than embracing it. I mean, we were just talking about the crucifixion of Jesus... Some were transformed by Jesus, but others became even more angry. And so it just depends how dark the karma is. But Jotun was obviously at the tipping point. So um, he did this daily for weeks. One day he came and told me gratefully, "Makunda, I have overcome my anger. I decided he needed to be tested. The pastor's not going to just take his word for it. He too, after all, had to be sure in himself that the chain was, change was firmly established in him. That, that's also an interesting point there. It's not enough for us to just say that we're different. We have to actually ourselves be tested and, and then have that real confidence that I really, I really know that this is who I am now because I've not merely affirmed it. I've not merely had this emotional moment where I've repudiated these things. But now I've actually faced in to the what used to ignite whatever bad quality I'm talking about. And I, now I can see that I really am strong in this. You know, um, the tradition of the Alcoholics Anonymous, the AA movement, is you never actually claim that final victory because you really, they, they warn you, you really can't be sure. And there's too many instances of people who are sober for 25 years and then that it'll still take you so to be really sure of yourself that's not to say that no alcoholic or former alcoholic can't ever repudiate it and sometimes people who who become sober or clean through one of these programs will come to me and ask do I really have to just keep doing this forever no not actually but you do have to be sure in yourself that you really know that this is behind you so master wanted to help him because the other side of it is, I remember when I uh, had this very difficult relationship and I thought I had transcended it, but all that had happened is that I hadn't been tested. And so as soon as I was tested, it took about 30 minutes before I was just as agitated and upset as I'd ever been. And I was, I was weeping about it. It was just so frustrating to me. And Swami said, and very casually and just lightly, he said, well, that's the good news. He said, you thought you were free of it, so you weren't putting out any energy anymore he said now you know you're not you still have work to do he said that's good news i thought yeah i guess i suppose it is it just meant that i had more work to do but that's sort of what i was saying earlier which is i had put myself at a level that wasn't true and when i discovered it wasn't true swami was just casual about it well that's helpful i was distressed but why because i am what i am what is there what's the point in that We make up points in that, but what is the point in that? I am what I am. And if I don't know it, that's not freedom. That's actual total ignorance, and things are even worse. So he wanted him to be sure in himself. So recalling the many enemies he'd made, I told a few of them to do everything they could to make him angry. Can you imagine? Poor Jotun there and all his old enemies come and try to torment him. They gave it a good try. However, they failed. Jota never faltered for a moment. He had indeed overcome his anger. Wow, what an incarnation. It all starts with Master playing football with the vulgar-speaking boys, too. You know, and it just step by step just leads one thing to another. It, it, there's this reality to Master's life that uh, we we affirm it, and we should affirm it, but how marvelous it would be to actually really live it where he never hesitated because he was he always knew he was moving according to what god wanted him to do and i watched swamiji swamiji didn't talk about it much but i think he was the same it's it's like he swamiji often said he really didn't know where things were leading but he knew that that was this was the next step he needed to take and it wasn't like he would follow Blindly all the time, but in various circumstances sometimes I asked him did you know where this was going? He said I had sort of an idea, but not really I just knew what I was supposed to do next and I just Confidently did what I was supposed to do next knowing that there was no way to get Anywhere except with just that calmness in another situation. He talked about how he, he, he embraced a a, a situation very easily as he put it because I was he said I'm used to following my heart he just could feel the energy flowing that way and he just went and it didn't make a lot of sense and he didn't know how it was going to work out that's in the festival of light first the bird is told you know cooperate with the wind the bird cooperates with the wind and he's lifted above the storm but then night falls and it's dark and the bird says, how can I fly in this darkness? It was fine when I could see where I was going, but now I'm supposed to surrender without knowing where I'm going. And the knight says, surrender to me. Peace awaits you in the unknown. And after a time, it says, <laughs> he surrendered, and he found it was true. But that's a huge transition point, and we say that every week. Huge transition point where we really are surrendering because all we know is what's right in front of us we don't know where it's going like that but then eventually that's it'll take us where we need to take it and master just I'm not going to play football with these boys they're vulgar oh here I have this one I have to do this I hear crying in this house I'm supposed to go in and bring this person back from the dead and he was asked would you have gone if God hadn't told you oh no no it wasn't because I knew the family. It was because God told me. I mean, that's so... Again, meditate on the relaxation and the freedom we would feel and do feel to the extent that we just know that, either that we're doing our best or that God is with us, and um, why would we be so anxious about everything? Interesting question, hard to answer. Okay, I think that's it for tonight. So we did, we finished, we finished 149, and so we went from 149 to 151. Okay, fun, interesting. I am taking another Tuesday off, which is the 19th to 20th. Okay, so that's a couple of weeks away, isn't it? So the 20th of September, there won't be a class. All right, thank you.